Kenya's diversity in history is so rich that everyone should visit Kenya at least once in their lifetime. We are the cradle of humankind. The oldest full human body skeleton was discovered in Kenya. For action-adventure author James Rollins, his travels and interests play a critical role in developing his thrillers. My excitement about these sports uh, play a critical role in often the different novels of mine, and I hope I'll take my reader and let him experience a little bit of that. We will get a taste of American history with Saturday Evening Post contributor Todd Pittock, who will take us for a stroll along America's Whiskey Trail. Author Myron Magnet tells us that the shaping of America can be understood by exploring our founding fathers' homes. Walking into those houses, it's like walking into the minds of the guys who built them. Explore Kenya, America's history from the Whiskey Trail and our founding fathers, meet best-selling author James Rollins, and learn more about Sri Lanka and Belize on World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. the building of America through the architectural styles of our founding fathers with author Myron Magnet as we discuss his book, The Founders at Home. Also coming up on World Footprints, we will speak to best-selling author James Rollins about his newest thriller, The Bone Labyrinth, and we'll learn why scuba diving and splunking are important to his creative process. We will explore American history as we travel the multi-state whiskey trail and from the floor of the New York Times travel show, we will shine a destination spotlight on Sri Lanka and Belize. country of Kenya's history can be traced as far back as six million years ago. That rich history, combined with the natural offerings that make Kenya the safari epicenter of the world, makes the country an attractive tourist destination. However, Kenya remains a mystery to travelers, so Yakinta Zioka from the Kenyan Tourism Board sat down with me to uncover some of these mysteries. Why is Kenya called the heart of Africa? Kenya is called the heart of Africa because of its location. It's at the east coast um, of, uh, of, the, of the country, where the heart principally would be if uh, you look at your body as your heart. Your heart is in the eastern part of the, of, of the towards the north and not further south. So that is um, the, 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 the location of Kenya. And it is also because it is uh, right at the equator, where the, 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 the heartbeat of the country is, where the rotation and everything happens through. So that is where we are located. Tourism is very important to Kenya, as it, as it is other countries. What has been your biggest challenges to tourism in Kenya, and what, are, what have been some of the biggest misperceptions that you would like to clear up? Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, thank you for calling them misperceptions, because indeed they are. Uh, the ch- biggest challenge we have is uh, the perception that... Um, about Africa, that it is unsafe to go, it is, um, you know, it's, it's not um, easy to get around, you know, how will I be able to, to, to get uh, in touch with my people back home, and on the contrary, you come down to Africa and you find an easy to get around place, it's easy to communicate back home, it's easy to enjoy with the people, and the African people are very warm and, you know, invite guests with open hands, and the perception about insecurity, because a lot of the international media focus a lot on, on the negatives coming out of Africa, and they forget to tell our positive stories, which are so, so many. And that is the only part of the world that has double um, uh, growth in, in, in the economies, nowhere else. So there's a lot that is happening. There's a lot that is happening to us in education-wise, ICT-wise, and those positive stories never get here. So we are here, and, and, and we want to take advantage of this platform to, 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 to inform listeners about, you know, the positives about Kenya. Kenya is very, very diverse, uh, with 42 
different cultures, and I know there's different religious sex. Um, uh, my best friend is an Indian Muslim. And so with that type of diversity, how do those uh, cultures really interact with each other? And, and does, it, does this include the, the different tribes uh, in Kenya? Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for that question. Actually, uh, if I could start with the tribes, we have 42 of these, mm -hmm. and they're spread across the country. As you drive through the country, within one or two hours, you're in a in a territory of a different of a different tribe, and you will seamlessly not even realize you have you're, you're interacting with a different tribe. What will make you know is different colors, how they dress. On the you'll be able to see even the language, the food, the lifestyles are different. But on the religious side, we are also very very diverse. Seventy five percent Christian and 30% uh, are Muslim, and then uh, Hindu, and of course there's also a section of Kenyans who are still traditional, and um, so they form the, the other 5%. So we all live in a community, you can live any, in any part of Kenya, you don't have to stay where um, your tribe is, a majority, so that interaction. Uh, the other thing is that we have a huge cosmopolitan uh, population. Kenya is, um, is UN's third largest capital. So there's big presence of, um, of, of, of expatriates, of international communities, all interacting. We go to school with the children of diplomats. We go to school with, you know, with, uh, with people who, who have come from uh, other parts of the country. So it's easy to, to interact, and we share a national language, the Swahili. So everybody in Kenya speaks that language, and of course English, which is our official language. Mm -hmm. So Kenya is, uh, I think it may be important to note, it sounds like a developed country and not a developing country. There is a distinction there, is that correct? Actually, um, within Africa, we, 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 we are not developing. Mm -hmm. Within our region, we have the strongest economy in East and Central Africa. So the other neighbors within that region look at us as the developed country. Mm -hmm. So we, in ICT, communication, our infrastructure, education levels, restaurants, facilities, lifestyles, even hospitals, they come from the neighbors into our country. So I can say, yes, we are developed um, by those standards. I know Kenya has 59 national parks. Uh, and uh, I, does that include reserves, private reserves? That does not include private reserves. It's um, national parks and reserves that are managed by either central government or uh, local government. They are private reserves, which we call conservancies. Uh, right now, they're in their 20s. We had our first conservancy um, in, the, in the 1980s, and these are neighboring people who own land near national parks and reserves. And since animals do not know borders, they cross and go into people's farms. So what we are encouraging Kenyans is don't, you know, fence your land right next to a park because this is migratory route for these animals. So a lot of the people living around um, the, the conservation areas are nomads. So a lot of times they don't, they don't build permanent houses, they don't grow crops, so they turn their land into conservancies where investors are welcome to build conserv conservation um, uh, projects to be able to also build uh, ecologies and community-based uh, properties so that also the people can benefit from the lease that you know they, they give to the, these properties in terms of um, economic uh, activity so they realize they can earn from tourism. This is World Footprints Radio. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick with my wife Tanya, and we are exploring the diverse natural and cultural offerings of Kenya with Jacinta Zioka, who explains why Kenya is considered the cradle of civilization and a destination that's worth visiting. We have more information about tourism in Kenya on this show page at worldfootprints.com. Kenya still seems to suffer from poaching problems most recently. I think you lost quite a bit of rhinos recently. What initiatives is the country putting in place to combat that crime? Right now, as we speak, the rhino as an endangered species has, I mean, every rhino is followed in Kenya. The, the, the rangers know um, by, the, the, by the, the, the track where these animals are. And remember, Tanya, that we, we, we are a country that our borders, our, our, most of our neighbors are, are countries that, that have been for years without governments, where it's easy for illegal, you know, arms to, to come in through. So we find ourselves also uh, neighboring some countries that allow 
hunting and we don't so it's 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 a, it's a communal prob, uh, problem for all of us and international community you know calling upon everybody to to support us in our anti poaching efforts because we have aggressive um, uh, programs uh, to, 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 to fight against poaching. It is illegal to, 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 to even have or to be found with any piece of uh, wildlife, um, um, be it ivory, be it skin, be it you know, hide or whatever it is. The fact that we have involved the locals in conservation and they can see what they are benefiting from making sure that that elephant is protected because at the end of the quarter they will get some money because they own part of the conservancy. They will not want to, they will not be, you know, swindled to kill it for ivory because of little money. They look at it as a long-term investment to protect the wildlife so that they can continue earning from it. So that way, even human-wildlife conflict has gone down and we are seeing communities embracing conservation a lot. What does Kenya have to offer that's different from other African countries? You know, Africa is so diverse. Um, I would want to appeal to, to listeners to look at Africa and the way you look at um, America. America has many countries. It has Southern, it has Northern, and all the countries in Africa are different. And the diversity of, 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 the, of the people and the landscapes is, is totally different. Kenya is one of the countries, actually I can say the only country that has greatest diversity. You can count the number of countries in the world that have both authentic wildlife experiences and fantastic beach resorts. You can count. You can count countries in the world that have mountains, snow-capped mountains as high as 6,000 meters above sea level, and yet they have beaches and savannas. You can count the number of countries that have great rift valley. We are the cradle of humankind. The oldest full human body skeleton was discovered in Kenya. And you owe it to nature, to humankind, to visit Kenya one time before you die. So it is just those unique things and, and, and the fact that we are home of the original safari. Safari is a Swahili word from Kenya. It means journey. For me, if I'm going to the market, I'm going for to a safari. It's a safari to the market. So it's a journey. So anything you do in Kenya, it's a, it's a safari because of the diversity. Yeah. Even going on one game drive today, morning, evening, and the following day, you will see different things. It's natural. That is, that is the uniqueness about Kenya. As a scuba diver myself, a water baby, wow. I love the, the fact that you have 300 miles of coastline, and yeah. I love even more that you have the reef. Is scuba diving a, a popular sport in Kenya? Scuba diving is, is a popular sport in Kenya for those who have, who have mastered it, for those who know about it. We find that a lot of guests uh, who come to Kenya First of all, just enjoy being on a white, sandy beach, you know, warm water all year round, serene, you know, um, spaces and all. But the, the consumer is changing. People are becoming more health conscious, more adventurous, and they want to go in there and, 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 and have an adventure. So it is, it, is, it, is, it is a niche in Kenya. It is not even offered by all the tour operators. Well, you know, there's a couple of other very unique sports I learned about today. It sounds like you brought a little bit of Spain to Kenya with bullfighting. And I want to ask, how on earth did uh, <laughs> did you develop bullfighting as a sport in, in Kenya? <laughs> you know, this is, is done just by one tribe. Out of the 42, one tribe. Not even my tribe. I, so, so this is something that these guys grew with from the you know from the great grandparents you know what why they do their bullfighting you bring your biggest bull you register it you know it's a community thing so the chief is involved mm -hmm. and everybody takes care of their bull you know waiting for the day that mm -hmm. they are going to be fighting and the, the 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 bull that wins the owner is elected as the chief in the next year so you're a leader. You can take care of such an animal, then you can surely take care of the entire village. <laughs> you're a strong man. And, and what, what tribe is this? This tribe is called Luya tribe. It's, it's the biggest tribe in the western part of Kenya. Okay. Yeah. What, uh, northwest? Western part of Kenya. Yeah, yeah. And what about uh, rhino charging? What, what type of sport is, is this? Are, because rhinos are very dangerous animals. 
<laughs> it's just the name. It's not for, for, for rhinos, but it is the cause. It is done. It's a sport that is, um, uh, you do uh, like a rally on really, really challenging terrain, you know. Out there, you know, in the in the bushes, and you know, you use those cars that your wheels are as high as you know in people, and they do the. It's it's a fun thing to do. It's an adventurous sport to do, and the cause for this because a lot of corporates sponsor it. All that money goes into conservation of rhinos. Is that uh, is that an event then the public can uh, can register yes. to participate? Yes. Kenyans participate. Corporates participate. So we sponsor a car, and we we, we sponsor a driver. Kenyans come in with their, you know, vintage cars that can, you know, with, with um, survive in such terrain. And you're up there, you're enjoying yourself. It's it's once in a year, and and it it is not just the driving. There's also camping. There's also fun activities in the evening. So it's a fantastic way of telling Kenyans, let's conserve the rhino, but you know, find an adventure thing that nobody else is doing. <laughs> Kenya seems to have a very rich history. Yeah, is there a particular historical fact that would surprise most people? Maybe I can use the archaeological um, fact because um, Kenya is a is a cradle of humankind. The oldest full human body skeleton was discovered in Kenya in 1984 in a place called Lake Turkana, and this, you know, confirms that sometime man used to roam around, you know, Kenya. So that is the origin. Otherwise, why hasn't this been found in other parts of the world? <laughs> so at our core, we're all Kenyans. We're all Kenyans. <laughs> we are all Kenyans. We just, you know, migrated to other parts of the world. So you need to come back home to Kenya. Visit Kenya and come back home. <laughs> to explore Kenya, its natural beauty and cultural diversity, visit MagicalKenya.com. We also have a direct link on this show page on worldfootprints.com. In this destination spotlight, Verena Da Silva shines a light on Sri Lanka from the New York Times Travel Show. Sri Lanka was formerly known as Ceylon, Ceylon tea, which most people are familiar with, best tea in the world. But we've come through a dark period. We had some uh, political and ethnic problems for 30 years, and there was peace declared in 2009, so all of the... Uh, shadow of uh, unease is taken away, so there's been a big focus on tourism. We find that Sri Lanka, although it's a small country, has a lot to offer. It's packed with ancient cities going back to 5 BC. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. And Arthur C. Clarke, who lived there, said it was one of the smallest countries with the most amount of attractions, like a continent. We have uh, mountains, beaches, wildlife, all of it, so it's well worth a visit. The most important thing is that it's a diverse uh, destination. If you go there, you get the full gamut of what tourism is all about, intermixing with the local people, culture, history, iconic buildings, uh, culture from Portuguese, Dutch, and the British, so there's a flavor of all three countries there. Also, if you like to uh, stay in a boutique-type hotel which with mountain views or beach scapes, all kinds of different things. So there's something for everyone. When I say I'm from Sri Lanka, people say, where is that? 
it's a little island off the coast of South India in the Indian Ocean. So if you're going to travel there, you can go from New York through Europe, or you can go from New York to Tokyo and on. We're like right halfway across the world. But don't be put off by the long flight because it's really worth it. Sri Lanka is predominantly Buddhist, 80% Buddhist, 10% Hindu, and the rest are Christians and Muslims. So everywhere you go, you see a lot of the Buddhist culture with the pagodas and the temples and the religious ceremonies. We have also the Hindu culture, but with the uh, Portuguese, Dutch, and uh, British colonization, we have Dutch forts, we got a lot of the colonial buildings, we even have their food, so you have a mix of uh, cuisines as well, you know, if you are a foodie, it's a great trip to go on because you can try these different kinds of uh, foods from three different parts of the world. Best-selling author James Rollins takes us to mankind's next great leap in his newest thriller, The Bone Labyrinth. Using his training as a veterinarian and personal adventures, James explores the mystery of human development and forces us to ask where we are headed as a species. I understand that your training as a veterinarian has helped you with the development of your newest book, The Bone Labyrinth. How has it helped you? Well, I love to fold animals. You know, I, I still do some volunteer work with my veterinary degree, though I do write full-time. But because I've sort of stepped away from full-time veterinary medicine, animals have crept into my writing. A lot of uh, characters have animal sidekicks. But in this case, I have a sort of a unique animal. He's a three-year-old mountain gorilla. Uh, he uh, speaks with sign language. He's got an unusual genetic history. And he is abducted along with his research associate. And it allows me to, to delve into the, the sort of the research that goes on with primates. It allows me to explore uh, our human intelligence, where it came from, where it's maybe headed next. Mm-hmm. It also lets me explore the issue of, uh, of doing research on animals. Because basically uh, most countries ban or tightly restrict the use of great apes in research. But uh, the saddle of the United States is not really up to the, the full restriction that they probably should have on at this point. And so I'd love to explore both the science behind great apes and also so maybe shine a light on what's going on in the current research models for them. The Bone Labyrinth is the 11th Sigma Force series. Can a first-time reader pick up where, say, the Sixth Extinction or the Midnight Watch left off? Definitely. I mean, I structured the series that anybody can hop in at any point. Matter of fact, I think 90% of my readers have not read my books in order. They've just picked up the current book, maybe catches their eye, and if they liked it, they fill in the, the backstory from there. You know, I think if you read the stories in order, there's a little nuance of character, but definitely each novel is self-contained and can be appreciated all by itself. Now, your book, as you kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, explores the development of human history and intelligence. And I have to ask, you know, as a resident of the Washington, D.C. area, what exactly is human intelligence? Because I don't see much of it here. <laughs> that is a challenge. It's so funny. <laughs> so, one of the facts I found out is that... Uh, you know, for the, the last 200,000 years, our brains haven't changed much, uh, except for the fact that about uh, the last 15 years ago, our brains have actually been shrinking. So maybe that's a reflection of what's going on. In <laughs> that would explain it, I think. I understand that we also share a common passion for scuba diving. Do you have a favorite dive spot that you like to frequent? Probably Belize is one of my favorite places to go to. Whenever I go to a new place, I'm looking for two things. I'm looking for a cave to explore and a place to go diving. And while you do a lot of spelunking, and that's something I haven't uh, tried, what is that like for you, and, and has it inspired some of your storylines? They definitely have. You know, I think writers should be writing from a point of passion. And when I was in college, while everybody else was going to keggers and beer parties, I, for some bizarre reason, joined a caving club and was crawling underground. And I still love the fact that potentially when I'm doing, exploring a new wild cave, that I could be seeing something nobody's seen before. And likewise, even with scuba diving, most of the oceans have not been fully mapped or explored in great detail, so you could be seeing something no one's seen before. And so I love that thrill. I love the challenge. I love the physicality of it. And so I try to fold that into my novels. My excitement about these sports uh, play a critical role in often the, in different novels of mine, and I hope I'll take my reader and let them experience a little bit of that from the armchair. 
You travel a lot. You've recently returned from China and uh, had an interesting experience at one of the zoos in China. And I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that. You go to the Beijing Zoo, and the main star of the, of the, of the Beijing Zoo is the Panda House. And it's a nice, pristine, modern facility. The animals look well-kept. But as soon as you sort of wander away from that main tourist attraction of the zoo, where most of the buses are unloaded and, and the, the tourists are sort of shipped to and shipped out of, you'll find out the rest of the zoo is in sort of shabby shape. They're ill-kept. They're treated animals very badly, and mm. they're very poorly policed. So it's, again, it's, I love taking a sort of a details like this and shining a spotlight on them. As a matter of fact, one of the things I learned after the fact from talking to somebody associated with the zoo, that once upon a time, the descriptions on the zoo, the little charts or the signs in front of the zoos, or in front of the exhibits, used to list you know, what parts of the animal were edible and the tastiest, and what part of the animals were best used for medicine. So almost the zoo was being used like a, a menu board. Oh. Uh, so it was, uh, it was disturbing. Now, those aren't there anymore, but there's still a restaurant at the Beijing Zoo that does serve things like hippopotamus toes and giraffe meat. So it's a little disturbing. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We are talking to best-selling author James Rollins about his life and latest thriller, The Bone Labyrinth which explores the evolution of human intelligence and asks if mankind's existence is threatened. Visit this show page on our website at worldfootprints.com to read more about the Bone Labyrinth. I also understand that there's a lack of resources uh, as well, and so I haven't really been able to rationalize a balance between lack of resources, food sources, and with animal care, humanity, uh, and, and so that's, that's something I still struggle with. When I was at the zoo, you know, I did find out that they are planning on moving the zoo to a new facility, uh, a large facility outside of Beijing proper. Uh, so hopefully we'll see that improve. But, you know, I was looking at, you know, you go to the Olympic Village and you, you see the amount of money spent at the Olympic Village. Right. Um, and you just wonder why they can't do a little bit better at the zoo. Which is right. A tourist attraction, you think they would want that to be a shining beacon of their city when it really is sort of a, a sad Right, right. Do you travel to some of the places, for example, the Bone Labyrinth is set in Croatia. Do you travel to some of the settings in your book? I've actually been to about 70% of the places I write about, I've been to. I don't always necessarily travel for research per se, like I'm say I'm going to set a story in, in France, I'm going to fly to Paris, run around Paris and come back and write about it. I usually just travel for the fun of it. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I love asking people, you know, walk up to one of the local locals and ask them, hey, tell me something that nobody knows about this town, a secret nobody knows. I did that in Beijing, by the way, and I learned this detail by asking that question. And this gentleman told me that what most people don't aren't aware of is that beneath Beijing, there's an entirely entire underground city that was built during the Soviet era so that the entire Beijing population can recede underground if there's ever a nuclear attack. It's still there. It's crumbled into ruin. It collapsed in a few places, but it's still down there. It has many secret entrances down to it. As a matter of fact, during the Tiananmen Square crackdown, that's the way the Chinese government moved troops into position and even tanks into position was through this underground city because some of those tunnels are large enough for tanks to roll down. By traveling, asking questions, taking pictures, journaling, oftentimes I, I just do that for the fun of it. I put it on a shelf, and then whenever I'm building a novel or maybe my characters are coming close to that area, I've got my research and some mysteries uh, all set to go. Is there a place that has really just resonated with you, a destination, a particular destination? One probably area that I'd love to explore in greater detail is the Amazon. I wrote a book called Amazonia, which takes place in the Amazon rainforest, but I I still am fascinated by that. Maybe that, again, goes back to my roots as as a biologist and a veterinarian about all the strange animals that are out there. And so I'd like to go ahead and, and at one point, revisit that part of the world again. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that the Sigma Force has been optioned. There's a movie in development. Do you have any updates, any breaking news for our World Footprints audience? Well, the entire series has been picked up. I I can't give you much more details than that because I've been asked to keep it somewhat quiet uh, in regards to the the, the significant details. But yes, the first book in the series is currently being converted into a screenplay. So hopefully at some point we will see Sigma Force and my characters on the big screen. To read more about James Rollins and his Sigma Force series, visit his website, jamesrollins.com, or find a direct link on this show page on worldfootprints.com. You're 
You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Coming up, we will explore American history through two different perspectives along America's Whiskey Trail and through the homes of America's founding fathers with author Myron Magnet. We will also shine a destination spotlight on the beautiful country of Belize. If you want more travel experiences beyond this radio show, we invite you to visit our website, worldfootprints.com, where you can peruse our library of radio shows, articles, and more. You can also find links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. At World Footprints, we like discovering and sharing little-known travel treasures. One of those is the American Whiskey Trail. Todd Pittock is a contributor to the Saturday Evening Post. He toured the Whiskey Trail, which runs from Mount Vernon to Bardstown, Kentucky, and he rediscovered the rich heritage and deep roots in our nation's history along the way. Todd, welcome. Good to be here. Tell us about the Whiskey Trail. Exactly what is it? Uh, the trail itself uh, was started by the Distilled Spirits Council of America, which is a, a, a trade group, um, to promote uh, the idea of American whiskey. But what they, they so they set up a a route that runs basically, as you said, from Washington up through Pennsylvania down to Kentucky, and actually all the way to Tennessee, with a lot of neat stops along the way at distilleries. You know, and, and so as you go, you're really narrating a very interesting, you know, episode in American history that, you know, carries on to this day and that, you know, you can visit and taste. This trail takes us into states like Maryland and Pennsylvania and then westward to uh, Kentucky, and so it, it, it does kind of follow, in a sense, kind of the national road, but... Talk to us about the importance of whiskey in really the development of uh, industry and commerce in our country. You, you know, you have these whiskey distillers, which was a big part of American life in the, you know in Pennsylvania. Um, and and I guess maybe it's a good point to talk about where um, you know what that brief history is. Well, it's actually quite a long history. But we'll tell it briefly. Um, you know, the, the distillers were. Uh, busy in Pennsylvania, the government, the, the president at the time was George Washington. Washington imposed a, a, a tax on distillers. That led, that was the first federal tax. And it led to a rebellion known as the Whiskey Rebellion. The irony is that Washington then began, George Washington then started making uh, whiskey himself later uh, and became uh, very successful at it. Uh, the Whiskey, because of the, the rebellion, the whiskey distillers fled Pennsylvania, uh, and that's actually why we associate, then they wound up in Kentucky and Tennessee, and that's why we associate those areas with whiskey today. How do people learn ab about American history, and was this trail, uh, self-guided trail, created because America failed to tell its whiskey story all these years? That's a great question. I'm going to start with the second one. There are people who really feel that we didn't tell the uh, story of American history, the story of American whiskey very well. Um, and this became a way, as with all trails, it becomes a way to narrate, uh, you know, the, the history and to add, add, add at each distillery as you go from place to place. Now, I'm going to answer your first question alongside it. Um, you know, there are great resources online. There are books along the way, and they're often sold in the gift shops of these places. Um, but each of the distilleries talks about their own uh, piece of the story, and I think that's how you learn it. You're also seeing these fantastic landscapes. Um, in terms of telling the story of American whiskey, I guess there's, there's a lot of ways to do that. I, what interested me was, was the history, right? Uh, but then there's also the, the story about what it is. I think that it's been seen as, you know, because we have bourbon, we have Tennessee whiskey. Those are distinct American styles. And there are other styles. I mean, this is also part of the the whiskey story today is the resurrection of old recipes. Are there places along the trail that are essentially relics and artifacts and buildings that are no longer used that are 
important to telling this story as well that people can see? As I said, the the first one is Mount Vernon. Uh, I mean, that's pretty much where they started the tour. Um, You know, and that's obviously George Washington's house uh, and the distillery. And and the the interesting part of that story, that piece of it is just that they excavated the distillery and then they started making whiskey again from that distillery. It was was dormant for a long time. But obviously, it's not just about whiskey. The the trail goes up actually into Manhattan. It goes up to uh, the Francis Tavern Museum, which is where Washington bid the troops farewell. Um, There are, you know, there's there's Gatsby's Tavern in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, uh, You know, it's a historic building. So it's not only whiskey, um, yeah. So then, you know, and and then and, and there are some places, by the way. I, I did not. There were places that I didn't visit myself along the way, um, including um, the Oliver Miller Homestead in, in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and I don't think they're making whiskey there. This is World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We are enjoying a bit of whiskey and a taste of American history with Saturday Evening Post contributor Todd Pittock. Visit worldfootprints.com for more information about America's Whiskey Trail. What's happening in the whiskey space in in terms of these uh, regional whiskeys and the growth of this craft distilling around whiskey? The artisan craft uh, phenomenon is happening across everything, right? And and it's certainly happening in whiskey, too. you know, and, and there again, there's a little bit of history, right? So, so you had prior to prohibition, you had hundreds or more of uh, distillers, and they were making their own stuff. There were guys who made, you know, whiskey in mine shafts, and they used all kinds of. There's something called sugar shine, which is made the, the, made, the base of it. It has a lot of, um, I believe, it's cane. Um, and so these recipes, when when prohibition came in, all these places were shut down. Um, and when Prohibition ended, the industry was dominated by a few big companies. So now, all the way, you know, all this time later, it's only beginning to recover and get back to what it was, which is this incredibly diverse, you know, world of whiskey. Um, you know, the, what got me interested in this particular place, in addition to the fact that the trail was there, was I kind of wanted to go back to the origin, the places where it's been anchored and kind of started you know, and, and held its own all the time. But now you're seeing whiskey made all over the country, um, you know, and really, really neat, fun stuff. Tom, I want to clarify just for our audience benefit that when we're talking about the the whiskey trail, it's not in the same vein as talking about a, a wine trail with regards to tastings. Uh, because I understand from you that there are tasting regulations. It's a funny story, actually. Um, Jack Daniels is in Lynchburg, Tennessee, and it was only relatively recently that they were permitted to, to offer samples. Um, and, you know, until uh, last year, 18 months ago, uh, Lynchburg remained a dry county. They never had enough uh, uh, people there to overturn uh, the regulations that, that dated to prohibition. Kind of an irony, considering it's the most visited whiskey distillery, I believe, in the world. I know it's the number one selling whiskey in the world. Um, so, so yes, I mean, it, depending on what distillery you go to, you may or may not be able to taste because it, it, the rules differ from county to county in these places. Todd Siddick is a contributor to the Saturday Evening Post. He wrote an article about his adventures along the whiskey trail. Sip your way through American history along the Whiskey Trail. Find out more at discus.org backslash trail. Or visit this show page at worldfootprints.com for a direct link. In this Destination Spotlight, we learn about the diverse offerings of Belize from Althea Sebastian at the New York Times Travel Show. Belize is in Central America. Um, We're bordered to the north by Mexico, west and south by Guatemala. English is the official language, but due to our close proximity to other Central American countries, Spanish is widely spoken as well. Tell us about some of the cultural influences that have made up Belize over the years. Okay, well, as you may know, Belize um, was, one home, was once um, home to the Mayas, 
we still have a lot of Mayas living in Belize to date and we have um, one of the most extensive cave systems in Belize. We're also um, the largest concentration of Mayan archaeological sites is located in Belize as well. Belize is what we like to say is a melting pot of cultures. Besides the Mayas, we have the Garifunas, we have the Creole, we have the Mestizo, um, we have the East Indians, we have, it's just a whole, we have over like seven different cultures in Belize. In Belize, we like to say you get the best of both worlds because we're considered the Caribbean, but we're also Central America. So you get that unique, authentic um, feel we have. The Inland Adventures, besides the beach, we have the Inland Adventures where you can go do the cave tubing, the zip lining, we have the different waterfalls. I mean, culturally, we have the Mayas. They have um, the Maya Homestay Program where guests can go in and spend a day or a couple hours with a Maya family. It's a very authentic educational experience where you go in, the, they take you into the cacao fields, you pick the cacao, they bring you back home and they teach you how to make chocolate from the cacao. So it's a very, very educational and neat experience. How would one find out about that program? Um, well, you can visit our website, www.travelbelize.org, and there's a link on there that you could get their contact from. I'm a diver, and I understand from other divers that Belize has one of the most beautiful dive sites in, in the world. We do, and of course we have the Blue Hole, which is an avid site for divers. Um, it's 412 feet deep, very, very pristine, very adventurous, you know. <laughs> so you can go in and dive the Blue Hole. Um, diving is great because we also have the second largest barrier reef, so the water is very pristine very colorful, a lot of fishes, you know, a lot of wildlife, sea life. In his new book, The Founders at Home, The Building of America, 1735 to 1817, historian and City Journal editor Myron Magnet tells the magnificent, intimate, and intertwined stories of our founding fathers, their successes, flaws, and inspirations. The founders at home provide a unique glimpse into the architectural influences that shaped their homes, lives, and visions of self and our nation. Myron, welcome to World Footprints. Oh, Tanya, it's a pleasure to join you. So I understand that you actually have um, your wife to credit for this accidental inspiration to write this extraordinary book. Yeah, absolutely. She, you know, she'd gone on a road trip with my son, and they, among other things, had driven down to New Orleans through the back roads of Mississippi and came back with the most astonishing story. She said, you know, we could go on a road trip, too, you and I. I said, oh, I don't know. Uh, and she said, "Well, you know, we could we could go to Virginia and see the houses of the founding fathers. You'd like that, right? I mean, you love architecture, you love the founders." And I thought, "All right, you know, what could be bad?" Um, and it turned out to be a complete conversion experience for me. I walked in, especially to Monticello, mm-hmm. and was floored. As, and you you understand, I was more than sixty when we did this, and how I. I, I mean, I've seen the great houses of England and many of Europe, um, but I had never been to see the houses of the Founding Fathers. And walking into those houses, it's like walking into the minds of the guys who built them. And they were like so many 18th century gentlemen, amateur architects. So these are really personal artistic expressions of their inner longings and their ideals and and you get such a i mean you know you you know this you walk into monticello Mm -hmm. um and the the intricate floor plan you know all the demi octagons and the and the rectangles all fit together i had to have a blueprint in my hand just to figure out what was he doing here to make everything fit together and the the thing that strikes you after a while that's really notable and strange about the house is that it is flooded with sunshine he's got these floor to ceiling triple hung windows and louvered skylights everywhere i mean they're very technologically advanced was jefferson and so you finally get the sense that the whole house is 
is like some enlightenment shrine and is crying out as Goethe was supposed to have said on his deathbed, more light. It's just, it's just the most beautiful and striking thing. And, you know, he was a, he, he became very young, a widower. Um, so it really is like a bachelor pad. Um, he had his slave Sally Hemings living in a room in the basement, and that was another thing that struck me about the house. He had, I mean, this is a whole a whole empire based on slavery down there. He had them all hidden away like the Morlocks uh, in uh, in what is it in the time machine, um, and and. Uh, uh, and, and you know, and it was also very interesting to see. We we all know about Jefferson's contrivances, his tinkering, his inventiveness. Mm. Uh, and so you know, there's the the famous hidden dumbwaiters on either side of the fireplace for sending wine bottles up from the cellar, and um, the lazy Susan revolving pantry door. But of course, the point of a lot of that was to keep the slaves out of sight. Um, because he was really so mortified by it since he knew as a man who had written that all men are created equal that it was an obscenely evil institution and he even wrote at one point in in words that that prefigure Lincoln's second inaugural um, that someday a god of justice will manifest by his exterminating thunder, his attention to the things of this world, and they are not to be left to the guidance of a blind fatality. Is it fair to say, then, as you've traveled uh, the country and, and toured the different homesteads, that is the one that resonated with you the most? They're all different, and they all speak to you. You know, I mean, uh, t- take one that's not much known, um, and that is Stratford Hall, the home of the of the Lee family. Now, the Lees came to America in 1639, they, uh, and it's very, very interesting. You know, you read about uh, the first Lee and his wife um, were the first white people, first Europeans on the northern neck of Virginia. Um, you know, managed to escape an Indian massacre, huge, huge uh, farms out of wilderness, um, and and you know they had already been in the in the country for several generations before you come to the great generation which had two signers of the Declaration of Independence, two important American diplomats abroad in the Revolution, and their cousin, who was one of the most dashing of the Revolutionary War generals. I mean, imagine that, growing up in one house, you've got five founding fathers, and guess what? The general, Light Horse Harry Lee, had his children born in that house, one of whom was none other than Robert E. Lee. Um, so, you know, you, you, the thickness of the history there, and, and mind you, R- Richard Henry Lee, um, who, who lived in the house in, in the generation before, Ro- before Robert E. Lee, um, in 1759, he made his maiden speech in the Virginia House of Burgesses, and this slave owner gets up and says to his fellow slave owners, in slavery. This is this is more than a hundred years before the Civil War. He says it's unjust and it's uh, it's imprudent because uh, uh, we are becoming economically and culturally backward um, compared to what's going on in the free North. Um, so this took some courage for him to be able to do, but it's also, I mean, to me, it was just the most extraordinary thing that at the very heart of the slave empire, in the middle of the 18th century, people knew perfectly well that what they were involved in was wrong, and people were trying to to do something to stop it, and then that it should happen, that this family should produce Robert E. Lee, who Lincoln asked to be the head of the Union Army, um, and then Robert E. Lee finally had to make his choice of which side was he on. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and the guy from this family made the wrong choice. Fascinating. You're listening to World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick, and we're exploring another side of American history with Myron Magnet in his book, The Founders at Home, The Building of America. To continue your travels with us, visit worldfootprints.com. Right across the river from me sits George Washington's homestead at Mount Vernon, and um, I'm amazed at the things that I learned about George Washington. He was a very progressive man. Oh, uh, fabulously. For his time. Um, but speaking of George Washington, I want to uh, fast forward a little bit to another historic home that you visited in 2008. Um at that time, my former boss, uh, President George W. Bush, awarded you with a National Humanities Medal. Congratulations, first <laughs> of all. <laughs> um, now, was that uh, was that your first time at the White House? And oh no, you know, uh, I wrote a book. I, 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 an earlier book I wrote was called "The Dream and the Nightmare." the 60s legacy to the underclass and it's all i mean you you know i have an obsession with culture um having started life as a as a professor although i soon turned to journalism um but uh, uh so 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 this book argued that the the changes that we made in our culture in the 60s having to do with sex, having to do with letting it all hang out, having to do with the rejection of authority, um, you know, they may have had having to do with drugs. Um, they, they had bad effects on individuals. Um, but if you came from a, you know, a solid middle class family, generally speaking, you could avoid or recover from some of the bad effects of the of the cultural transformation that happened in the 60s but people at the bottom of society who have no leeway whatsoever for failure you know if you tune in turn on and drop out and you're already at the bottom you will never get back and we lost you know now several generations of the inner city underclass uh and it's a, it's a, it's a. I mean, it's just a tragedy that, that that's still with us today. So Carl Rolfe had read the book and gave it to George W., um, who read it and told the Wall Street Journal that that it was the most important book for him after the Bible. Hmm. Um, and uh, so you know, so he asked me to come down to Austin when he was still governor of Texas. We became friends then and stayed friends all through his presidency and you know kept in touch uh and uh, every so often i would i would politely send him suggestions and he would you 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 know this the the scroll and the felt pen right <laughs> um i I'd, I'd get i'd get back a nice note from the president um and uh, so so no i was in the white house you know uh, really many times while he was president and it was very exciting to go back at the end, and I, I am very proud of having the National Humanities Medal, and especially from having it from his hands, since I admire him so much. Indeed, indeed. Myron Magnan is the author of an extraordinary book, The Founders at Home, The Building of America, 1735 to 1817. And there is a link to... Uh, Purchase and read more about this book on our website and on Myron's guest page uh, on our website at worldfootprints.com. Myron, thank you so much for joining us today. I would love to have you back on our show. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I know there's so many more stories uh, that that you have to share, and uh, I'd love to invite you back. Thank you, Tanya. I enjoyed it very much. For more on Myron Magnet's book, The Founders at Home, The Building of America, visit this show page at worldfootprints.com for a direct link.
babe, I love talking about travel, as as you know, and we both do, which is why we do what we do with World Footprints. And it's even nicer when we get to talk a lot about things that we're very passionate about. And today's show, there was a lot of scuba diving chat. You know, I love diving. Um, I haven't been to Belize. Um, the Blue Hole is really, really interesting, although when Althea was telling me about it, and I was trying to envision going down over 400 feet and uh, just with, you know, kind of an oxygen nitrox mix. And I thought, I don't know if there's any diver that have actu- that has actually gone down that that far, but it sounded so beautiful. And then Sri Lanka, surprisingly, there is a, a very strong push towards tourism there and I was very surprised, pleasantly surprised to see them at the New York Times travel show and to learn a little bit more um about the country. Well interestingly enough, you being the diver, I'm not the diver here and I really don't want to do diving, but <laughs> it was nice to find that you and James Rollins uh are both divers right. and he considers Belize to be one of his favorite diving spots. I know. I know. How about that? It kind of our show kind of came full circle and then we talked about one of my I'll say my favorite topics, um, whiskey. And um, you know, just the the whiskey trail, which is something we haven't done yet and I hope we do in the very near future. But just the history, you know, the correlation between the um, progression of whiskey or manufacturing of whiskey with American history, I I found very, very interesting and um, certainly loved learning about Kenya. Uh, As you know, one of my uh, best friends from college owns a beach resort in Mombasa, and I've not I have not been to see my friend, who you know, Shai Noor, uh, and uh, and she's invited us many times to to, uh, to come to Kenya, and so I hope that that's a trip that we uh, will do this coming year, and 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 even look at some of the scuba diving there, but mostly, you know, just to explore the country and the natural um, beauty, and maybe even, you know, meet some of the the tribal communities that Yaquinta uh talked about and um and certainly Myron Magnum. He's a very colorful uh man, very learned man, and I was really impressed just with his grasp of American history and how he really dissected the architecture of some of the founders' homes and transposed that with their architectural style and with their interest in uh in hopes for America and even some of their social consciousness um and i i don't know about you but you know when we went to mount vernon and learned how george washington was actually anti-slavery but you know to hear that that many of the founding fathers um were actually against slavery uh particularly those you know further uh north uh and and that's surprising to me yeah, and going back to uh, the architecture of uh, a new nation, uh, architecture really reflects kind of an optimism, a hope in a sense as to where the country wanted to be and where it wanted to go, even though they still had to rely on antecedents from other places. But it was nice, particularly in visiting places as we've done like Mount Vernon and Monticello, to really see an American form take place that really reflected kind of the hopes and dreams and optimism of a new nation. And so it was nice to hear Myron speak to that. Mm-hmm. Well, as we close today, we'd like to leave you with a quote from Aldous Huxley. To travel is to discover that everyone is wrong about other countries. We appreciate you inviting us into your life We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing another amazing journey with you on World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes, and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. 
At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.